You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amir, one of the PhD students of the program. In just under a week, the near 450 municipalities across the province of Ontario will be holding elections to chart the next four years of local governance. And while municipalities play an important role in the provision and administration of services for Canadians, the structures and institutional dynamics of municipal governments mark a fairly underdefined black box in Canadian political science. While the roles and responsibilities of the provinces and federal government have been thoroughly defined by constitutional documents such as the BNA Act of 1867 and have been subject to countless pages of scholarship, municipalities, as important as they are, have been understudied, underdiscussed, and largely ignored by scholars, which is strange to say the least because local politics matters. From global concerns of development, commerce, and the environment, to some of the most important domestic issues in Canada, such as housing and the cost of living, local governments play an important role in the lives of Canadians, arguably to an even greater degree than their federal and provincial counterparts. Why have municipalities been largely ignored by Canadian political scientists? How have local governments grown from mere tools of the provinces to an important area of government in their own right? And why should you be paying attention to the politics of municipalities? To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined by Mary Kulos. Mary is a PhD candidate with Carleton's Department of Political Science, specializing in public administration and Canadian food policy. But, perhaps more importantly to our conversation today, she's also presently running a municipal campaign in anticipation of the 2022 Ontario municipal elections happening on October 24th as a candidate for the Ennismore Ward of Sulin Township in Peterborough County. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. And it's important because like, we're kind of talking about well, A, something really, really important, but a bit of a black box for people in municipal governance, right? And, and Canadian political science, we're, we're very much focused on institutions, we're focused on governance, but municipal government is one of those areas that really seems like it gets overlooked by the literature. And I was just wondering, why do you think that's the case? And why should scholars be paying attention to what's happening on the local level? Honestly, I think it's like a three-part maybe a three-part layered onion, we'll call it, because it is messy and it can make people cry sometimes. <laughs> so the first part is uh, in Canada compared to other states um, like the United States, municipalities don't have their own constitutions and they're not clearly defined in Canada's constitution. So this actually doesn't articulate the power and authority that they have for making policy or what their roles and responsibilities are. So in the States, we see the state level, the federal level, and at the municipal level all having their own constitutions. But in Canada, we only see that at the federal level. So local government in Canada is kind of just slipped into the constitution. And local government is this broad concept that actually includes municipalities and special purpose bodies. And both of those fall under the jurisdiction of the provinces to unfold. And later, um, as Canada kind of developed, uh, territories as well took on that responsibility to some extent. So when you look at that division of municipalities versus special purpose bodies, these are two, two bodies that come together and work to work out policies and implement solutions at the local level. 
that being said, municipalities, they, they're like the much more of the focus of where the power and policymaking and solutions come to the fore. But municipalities in and of themselves are actually corporations. So they're more business-like. And many scholars actually argue that they're not a form of government. So this comes into the messy part of it of to the extent of their authority and what they can do and why they're doing it. So the relationship here between the feds and the municipalities is also pretty unimportant to some actors and to some bodies because they don't understand the extent to which they can work with municipalities or the extent to which they're important to fulfilling solutions. So it's all just this messy ball of wax that as an academic, when you're looking at it, it's really hard to parse out what they're doing because they actually are doing so many different things for so many different reasons. And it really depends on the context. So that's like the first part of it is looking at that they don't have constitutions and therefore their authority and power is very questionable and nobody really knows what they're doing or how to do it unless you're looking at specific activities. So a lot of research would look at maybe financing um, or like environmental initiatives or maybe even business related innovative uh, funding projects. So those are all lenses that um, academics would look at and that's where it comes to the fore in the literature. But looking at it broadly, it's really hard to articulate how everything kind of uh, weaves together. The second part of this would be that I argue it as the personal is political. So a lot of people, when they engage in municipal politics, are doing it for a personal level or a personal reason. And this is distinct to each person, whether it's, um, and that, that lends to their identity. So if you're a business person looking to promote your, um, not necessarily expand your business, but promote your sector of the, of the business, we'll say. Um, a lot of people get into politics to do so. Other people might do it for social justice reasons. So that kind of articulates how people understand politics and how they move about or how they act within the political realm, the municipal political realm. And then the third argument I have here of, of why it's not a well-researched or well-explored area is that it's not actually well taught in school. So even in elementary school and high school, and I'm not, I'm speaking here from the Ontario perspective, born and raised in Ontario, is that like, I had trouble even understanding the federal and provincial system until I was doing my undergraduate, my master's and my PhD. So for the number of people that I talked to about municipal politics, they don't even know where the municipal office is or what it does. They just know they pay taxes and get certain services. <laughs> so I think the level of education here is a real issue that needs to be confronted in order for us to build a better understanding of municipal politics, but also to make it more accountable. And then I kind of want to jump into the second part of that is why should scholars actually be paying more attention? So there are a number of cool things going on at the municipal level that are really under the radar because municipal politics is so hard to understand and it's different in different municipal jurisdictions. If you look at the historical context of municipalities in the late 90s, early 2000s, especially in Ontario, and you can see some other provinces following suit um, kind of indirectly after this, is that the province of Ontario downloaded responsibilities to municipalities as a means of cost cutting. So this actually gave municipalities much more power, but because their contexts were so different, each one was generating new departments or allocating resources to specific tasks that others weren't. So that kind of created a lot of confusion of what are they doing? They have the power to do it, but everyone's doing it differently. So this also led to a couple of dichotomies that we see and we talk about, but not very well. There's the urban-rural dichotomy. So urban being larger um, populated centers, like the city of Toronto, city of Montreal, city of Vancouver, city of Ottawa, 
you have different demographics, you have, you have a lot of different resources that are needed by the people who live there. So the public service part of the municipality is much larger and therefore requires much more money and many more staff. And so it's actually harder to articulate what they do because they're doing so much. But then you compare that to a rural municipality who has less people and may not have services, like they may not have water or sewer, they may not have, uh, some don't even have garbage collection. Um, so the amount of resources and the staff allocated to that is much less. And so it much may, might be much more clear of what they do and why they do it. And usually in the areas where there's less resources needed by the people, the taxes are much lower and then the housing is much lower. So you see these dichotomies of what politics is in different places and why it means different things to different people in those places. Um, and then, yeah, sorry, part of that too is that the structure is much different because if you're having less staff needed to allocate money and to carry out those services and resources, then the actual structure of that municipal government is much more smaller. Another part of this too is since the charter and courts came in in 1982, this, this kind of literature is talked about at the federal and provincial level that the courts have had much more of a say in decision-making or um, questioning legal outcomes um, in related to government decisions. And it's interesting that this is actually happening at the municipal level, but it's not talked about as much. So a lot of it actually comes down to issues between councillors acting inappropriately. So going there, like in Ontario, there's an explicit code of conduct of what municipal, municipal councillors should and can and cannot do, as well as what staff can and cannot do. It's called the political public administrative dichotomy. Again, we love our dichotomies here. And that's actually something found in the American literature that we've adopted. Um, but it's really instilled in the municipal level. And it's much more mucky at the federal and provincial level. So this is an area that's really interesting. Um, and I'm really surprised there's a lack of literature on it. But when you see this division of what counselors are supposed to do, they're the decision makers. And then the staff are the people who are supposed to um, carry out the policy and the decisions on the ground. And so there's a divide there of those um, roles and responsibilities. But when you see counselors or staff overstepping, that's when you can bring some people may argue there's liability reasons there, confidentiality. And when those lines are crossed, that they have, you see like court cases come up. And so there's a lot of money spent on that these days. And I think there's a lot of ways around that, but there's a lack of literature. So a number of people haven't gone into that. Um, the other part here too, is that when you're seeing municipalities expanding and taking on more roles and responsibilities, some of the expertise isn't there yet. They're hiring people to take on um, leading new initiatives that they may not have the expertise in. And so if they don't seek legal counsel, there's a spending there even if you do uh, get the legal counsel. But if you don't and you get into trouble and you get into shady situations and then you're and then say like you're you're brought to court, like you, you're sued or you're whatever, um, then it's, you're bogged down in the, in the legal system again, and that costs money to the municipality over a long period of time. So basically, if you look at the courts and the charter after 1982, and the extent to which municipalities are kind of hung up in the legal system, there's a lot of money being spent and wasted, and that should really be looked at in Canada. A third one is the election process really varies. So the harsh reality is that we, we know very little about the voting behavior at the local level in Canada. And there has been some work done on this, but it's not consistent and it's not like a cohesive study across Canada. So a lot of work could be done there on 
um, studying voting behavior um, and the way in which municipal elections are run. This is important to know who is voting, who is not voting, and um, because some elections have critical moments, that might be people coming in who are liked and not liked, or critical questions that municipalities have to face, like are we going to spend money on upgrading our infrastructure and that increases our taxes, who's involved in that, in that decision-making process? There's a lot of questions there that really haven't been touched on, and that's a great area that academics need to pay attention to. And then I think overall, the final broad brushstrokes of municipal politics is uh, politics in general is looking at the power. And so municipalities have a lot of power these days, and it's actually very undermined or underestimated um, in the literature. So here you have to question the role and responsibilities of the mayor or Reeves. And technically, when you're looking at the way, especially in Ontario, that municipalities are, sorry, municipal councils are structured, the mayor and deputy mayor or Reeve and deputy Reeve, those are the same positions, just different titles they actually have less power than people think. They're not like a top leader of a party or a top leader of a government making the decisions. They are one of a group of decision makers at the table. So they are not necessarily going to be swaying that council. So looking at the extent to which they have power and they flex that power or the extent to which they're given that power by the people or the decisions at the table and the resources backing those decisions is a really interesting place uh, to to put focus for academics. And one example might, that we can talk about in a little bit is actually um, regulating marijuana cultivation and at the municipal level, because now municipalities have to work with Health Canada on marijuana. And that's a really tricky, muddy ground that uh, needs, needs a lot of attention <laughs> around power and dynamics. I like the fact that you mentioned that municipalities aren't in the constitution because, you know, it kind of creates this black box scenario, which is really, you know, to me as a political scientist really stands out right? because of those roles and responsibilities, they aren't really well defined. I think that the terminology usually used is that the you know, municipalities are machines of the provinces. And, and I, I wonder with that lack of definition, is there a fluidity in terms of process when it comes to municipalities? Do the roles and responsibilities kind of vary across a jurisdiction like Ontario or Canada more broadly? Or you know, are things generally the same if we're comparing municipalities? To be completely honest, I am not a strong person of the knowledge of comparing municipal governance across the provinces and territories. I'm much, my strength is Ontario. But that being said, I do know the brush, uh, like broad brushstrokes of different variabilities between um, how some provinces direct municipal governance over others. And I can give a few examples. My take is that in general, most municipal governments can become, can be explained by they are established to attend to the issues of a certain jurisdiction in a certain context that includes the landscape, the people, and anything that comes in between those two variables. That being said, every context is different. I don't think the literature itself can explain this variation or similarity. But that being said, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, and these have held kind of in the back of my mind, because I think they do speak to the differences that we should be looking to, um, or that could be explored further in the academic literature. Uh, the best example I can give is actually in municipal elections. So if you look at Ontario, the Municipal Act in Ontario was dated 2001, but it didn't come into practice until 2003. 
Uh, so anytime you have to reference it, it's 2001. But when you reference it with the practitioners, it's 2003. So you can see the difference there between the academics and the practitioners off the bat. That being said, so in Ontario, the rules had shifted in the early 2000s around the Municipal Act and the Municipal Elections Act. And in Ontario, they don't specify that jurisdictions and municipalities have to be considered every four years. And before 2001, it used to be every three years that a municipal election would happen. And then it wasn't up until, um, I think it didn't come into practice until about 2012, um, when municipal government or municipal elections actually became four-year cycles. But if you compare that to Quebec, Quebec in the provincial legislation outlines that municipalities have to reconsider the jurisdictional boundaries. They don't necessarily have to draw them, but they have to consider them to make sure that they're capturing the demographics properly. So, and that happens before every municipal election, whereas Ontario, it's not required. So the reasoning behind this um, is argue that in Quebec, they're looking at the demographic changes. So not only the people coming and going, but like if houses are being built or if new infrastructure is being brought in, you have to consider how many councillors are needed to make decisions around the landscape of those jurisdictions. Whereas Ontario, they, kind of left that out of the legislation. Um, and then I think another example here too is within municipal elections, the majority of them across the country, you're voting for a councillor to take a ward position. So a ward is a specified area or jurisdiction. It can either be a full township or a portion of a township. Um, an example is the township that I live in is Selwyn, and it is actually made up of three wards. Each of these wards historically used to be their own townships, and then amalgamation in the uh, late 1990s and early 2000s forced these guys to come together. This was underneath provincial uh, financial restrictions and uh, kind of reassembling how municipal governments was supposed to work in Ontario. And so we had over 800 municipalities in Ontario, and now we're down to 444 due to these amalgamations. So in, again, drawing back to Selwyn, Selwyn used to be three individual wards, and now we're one. But we still have three wards identified in our township, and each ward has one councillor, and then we have a mayor and a deputy mayor, or a reeve and a deputy reeve. Another thing here is that in Ontario, municipal councils have to have a minimum of five councillors. But again, each of these councillors are elected directly. So on the ballot for each ward or each position, it will say a list of names and you have to choose one name for each, for each position. Comparatively, there are other municipalities in Canada and in Ontario that um, you elect at large. So you just have this list of people and you elect who you want to each position or to a council at large. So if there's like 10 people on the council, you just check 10 names. Um, it, again, it differs between municipalities. Um, and one cool thing is like Thunder Bay, I'm not sure if they still do this, but I know in the, or the late 2000s, about 2007, there was literature on this really cool concept that they actually had emerged of at large and ward specific. So I believe there were, there was seven councillors that you would elect by the ward and then five at large or vice versa, which I think that's pretty cool. That gives a lot of flexibility on um, allowing who you want in there for different reasons. And we see struggles with this in the federal and provincial elections, but we're kind of seeing that flexibility at the municipal level. And at the municipal level, it's also like we're testing it out. Um, again, that question of authority and rules and responsibilities, it's very fluid and it's what works for each context. And another one who does at large would be Vancouver. 
um, if you're looking at a large urban center. I mean, it is interesting because on one hand, we have these old acts which governed provincial municipal relations, at least in Ontario, for a pretty long time. And on the other hand, just recently, they were completely revamped with the Ontario Municipal Act. It makes me wonder, you know, over the course of that time, how has the relationship between the municipalities and the province been? Uh, has it changed over time or has it been relatively static? I think the answer here, again, is it depends on the municipality. <laughs> um, I think the, if you looked at the literature about governments who came in, so this kind of goes into party politics and seeing what money was allocated to different efforts or what the provincial policy statements were of different governments at different times, you would then see different relationships with the municipalities. So if you're looking at a rural municipality who is focused on agriculture or tourism, they may have different standards or needs that the province may not be looking at if they're coming out of a recession or if um, we're coming out of COVID, right? They, so those are the kind of relationships that you see. They're much more personable and they're much more localized context. So to say municipalities and governments have specific tensions or specific relationships, I don't think the literature really points to that. Um, it's much more case study based. So let's take a bit of a sidestep here because you know, I'm personally always interested when scholars are taking their work and you know they make the leap into becoming practitioners and really you're doing that because you're running for local office. What made you decide to run for office? You know, and would you say that your time in the academy influenced it at all? So I've had to consider this um, over and over in my head. <laughs> Why am I doing this? <laughs> uh, the answer is definitely two parts. So the one part is the very personal side of me. I'm, I've never thought I would get into politics. I love studying it. Um, but to put myself on a pedestal to be a decision maker to be a face that really scares me I'm much more introverted and I don't think I like in a historical context ever saw myself doing that but the timing for me is right like I'm rounding the end of my uh, my dissertation I'm at this point in my life um, I'll be very like over like I'm I'll be 32 this summer I've got three kids I've got a mortgage I've got all these things that in my mind I need to discuss with my municipality and when you talk to people in in the same situation as me it's all we're all talking about these problems but nobody's doing anything about it so now that I'm kind of ending my PhD I'm having more time to think about what are my next steps and this just seems the right next step to actually do something in my community so for me it's attending to my community ensuring that like coming out of COVID where you're actually we have a plan and that plan is not necessarily clear right now because we have three of our five counselors leaving. We have a bunch of strategic policies in place that are older, um, that were written before COVID. So we have to reconsider what's in those documents um, and what the needs and priorities of the municipality are. And the other part of this too is that the majority of counselors um, historically from my township are retired individuals. So there's a lack of young ideas and young voices at the table. They may come to it for meetings to pose questions or queries and um, initiatives, but you don't see them actually on the other side of the bench helping make the decisions with the staff. So that's uh, something that I want to bring to the table if I can. And I kind of want to expand a bit more too on the aspect of coming out of COVID because again, this is very, it's not unique. Like we've come out of different scenarios similar to this in Canada's history, but for our township, 
COVID is, um, I guess, since the amalgamations and it's like three different wards coming together all with different and distinct uh, objectives. The people in each uh, you can see were predominantly like farm and agriculture oriented and tourist oriented. We have seasonal residents living on the lakes where we have Kawartha Lakes touching our borders of uh, Selwyn Township. So we, we have a lot of different dynamics of what we and the people that we're attending to. But coming out of COVID and having people who are rural dynamics as well as urban dynamics who are seasonal, um, we have to be very critical on what we want to do moving forward and how we want to do that. And you can see that there's a lot of funding at the federal and provincial level for people to come out of COVID. So whether that's entrepreneurial through business management or building up new local businesses, you can kind of see this at the Ford government level or Trudeau, like kind of pushing more health um, oriented policy and um, employment standards. So bringing those lenses um, to the table, it's not that they haven't been there, but they haven't been considered coming out of something like COVID before. So I really think that I not necessarily have the expertise, but I have the dynamic lens of um, policy analysis and having done this in my research that bringing this to the table as a practitioner might be a different situation, but I think it's a good experience for me and I think it's going to be good for the community. My plan is actually like to be there eight years, so two election cycles, um, but we'll see if the people like me for four and I go from there. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is an important consideration. <laughs> yeah. So. I- I'm glad you kind of brought up COVID within municipalities, because I mean, when it comes to the really salient issues that Canadians are facing, you know, things like healthcare, affordability, environmental protection, and indeed COVID-19, you know, there, there's sort of the federal and provincial marquee look, right, that we're looking at big governments and what are they doing about it. But there's also bound to be local dimensions as well. And I was just wondering if you could perhaps speak on the local dimensions of some of the major issues that you know Canadians are really in tune to, but might be ignoring. Uh, yeah, for sure. So I'm going to talk about this at two levels. So looking at kind of like the federal municipal relation and then provincial municipal relation. One example at the federal level um, that is actually under the radar now, but is going to be really salient in the next few years as we see uh, this kind of ramping up is um, marijuana crops in uh, municipalities. And I can give the example of my municipality. So while we don't technically have any um, legal crops being registered and being grown, we, um, we have had attempts <laughs> and um, we have had bylaws in place. And it's really when, when, when the federal government or legalized marijuana and instilled the licensing system through Health Canada, for municipalities, this was like a whole new ball of wax they had to figure out. <laughs> and so a lot of them are still figuring this out. So this is why I say it's salient, because although the idea of people um, of legalizing marijuana, people using it more frequently or more openly, is still kind of like chaotic, the actual background behind that of how it, it, lay, it plays out at the municipal level within municipal governance is, um, it's really interesting, but it's also very fresh and new. And a lack of knowledge and expertise has actually come to the fore yet. So um, I'll kind of explain this a bit more. So now that marijuana crops are legal, um, there's still that perception around it that perception is held like as if 
it was still illegal. <laughs> so depending on the demographics and uh, cultural and spiritual backgrounds and all that jazz, um, people are looking at it in different lights. They may like it, they may not like it. There may be contesting the production of it. Um, and that's beyond the three or five plants that you're allowed in your household. Like this is larger scale production for cultivation and selling to the legal market. So to break it down, with legal marijuana, you have cultivation, which is planting it in the ground and growing it. And the second part of that is the production. Production is taking that plant and turning it into something else. So whether that's taking off the plant while it's still alive and producing that into something or cutting it up and just like removing it out of the ground, there's a clear division between the cultivation and the production. Municipalities look specifically at the cultivation. So this relates to setting clear limits around like where it can be grown. And this may sound silly, but like how far away from a road it can be or how far from power lines or how far from someone's driveway. This is really important because a lot of people don't understand that there are like um, specific elements, like the smell of the plant when it's growing. There is a distinct smell and some people don't like that. Other people who may be quite keen to knowing what a marijuana plant is and not like it in their neighborhood may like just zone in on it and just not want it there so there has to be clear guidelines on like where it can be grown and municipalities do this through land planning so specifically um, site zoning or site plans I don't know for other municipalities but ours we're kind of struggling with this um, when it became legal a lot of people just came in and started growing and that became problematic because <laughs> we're, we're again a large agricultural rural uh, land classification type of municipality so that being said most of our land is agricultural based there are like trees and such uh, and forest um, environments on that agricultural land but it's designated primarily as prime agricultural land so people come in and think perfect gonna grow some marijuana um, and just set up shop without considering the municipal bylaws because it's so new number one and number two they're not necessarily clearly articulated yet so this has been problematic and municipalities have to consider what the challenges they might be facing currently as well as the challenges in the future and that's um, working with the federal level that's a salient issue that needs further to unravel and I think a lot of literature and research here could help. So another example and this is drawing from um, my township again and uh, again we're very rural agriculture based but we're on um, some of the Kawartha Lakes. One is Shamong. And connecting two of our wards is this causeway between Ennismore and um, Smith. And so a causeway, uh, for those who don't know, is just this long land bridge. Basically, we took dirt out of the ground, we put it in the water, we made a bridge. It was actually floating logs at one point, and there's lots of cars in that lake to this day. And so, <laughs> so we made a land bridge. But the land bridge had to be upgraded. And so pre-COVID, we had this plan that included intergovernmental relations and decisions and agreements that had to be, everybody had to be on board. So looking at the salient issue of road maintenance and connecting people between places through those roads is actually a really complex issue for our township because the road itself is connecting to uh, municipal wards. So you've got municipal uh, governance, the road itself is a county, so then you have another level of municipal governance. And then the lake is actually federal because it's navigable waters. And then it's, it's at the Ministry of Natural Resources at the Ontario level because of the species at risk and maintaining the safeness of those waters for those species. So you need all those parties at the table 
as well as First Nations, because we have those people living on those lakes as well. And they're like right up uh, the lake from like you can see uh, if you're standing on the causeway, you can see um, Curve Lake First Nations. So <laughs> there's a lot of levels there that we have to consider. And it's actually been very challenging to get anything done. And then once we started things getting in process, um, COVID hit and everything had to get stalled. So this is just an example of a salient issue of how do you do intergovernmental relations on one project that actually has so many different layers and so many different issues to tackle um, in a way that can be done in an efficient fashion, not only like human resources, but also funding and time. And this is something that a lot of the literature really doesn't unpack in case studies. And we need more. We need another lens there. So much red tape. That's the whole time. Yeah, that's oh, it's like, just like, whoa, man, that's just, that's a lot to it cut is. through. <laughs> it is. Again, and like, because our project isn't finished, like that red tape needs people at the table who are aware of those jurisdictional restrictions, challenges, but as well as the opportunities. A key thing here too, my understanding is that some of the previous counselors have worked really hard with Indigenous um, communities within Peterborough County not necessarily on reconciliation, but in efforts that you could say are reconciliation. Um, and so we have to maintain those relations too. And that is very stressful and uh, challenging in, um, we'll say a, a farming community and one on a lake where uh, you have uh, a number of urban seasonal residents who come and go for only certain months of the year. So there's questions about the extent of their respect for the environment here and maintaining its integrity as well as the relations with the different populations around. And I'm not trying to like pinpoint that it's the urban people. It's it's both rural and urban, seasonal, everyone around. We there has to be an understanding of who's here, why, what we all need to live a high quality of life and how we can be respectful to each other in that process. And then folding all that in to the intergovernmental relations is just a whole scary phenomena. <laughs> So it's a big year. Obviously, there's municipal elections going on, but we also, earlier this summer, had an election in Ontario more broadly. And I mean, I, I can't help but bring this up being a Torontonian myself uh, with the Ford administration because they've had some could say an interesting relationship with some municipalities over the years, particularly I'm thinking of Toronto City Council and the use of the notwithstanding clause there, at least the express intent to use it. And I was just wondering. Uh, with this election cycle that just happened and the election of a new Ford administration, did you notice any sort of interesting political developments as it relates to municipal governance and local governance in the provincial election that happened in June? Honestly, from our perspective, and when I say ours, again, I mean from the township perspective that I live in, um, I'm living, breathing of everything that affects me through my taxes right now. <laughs> I would say it's business as usual. While there are definitely political party divides in our township. Um, again, the townships are not, they're creatures of the province. They are not um, political party based. The residents themselves can identify as being, you know, liberal, NDP, conservative, et cetera. But townships themselves do not identify with one party or another. They are technically a neutral body that just follows the guidance of the province. So for municipalities, they're just following the guiding documents that come out of whatever government is in place. That being said, kind of relating to your previous question, sometimes there comes um, conflicts kind of arise depending on the issue area. And so with Ford, I think 
I, I honestly don't see very many tensions for our municipality because again, we're coming out of COVID. Everyone's just so fatigued. It's like, let's just get back to normal. What could this normal look like? And for Ford, drawing back on that we're predominantly um, agricultural based, uh, a lot of the funding and ideas support what we're already doing. Uh, they support tourism and innovation and entrepreneurship in Peterborough County. And again, we're related or we're located in Peterborough County. So it Right now, it, it looks like business as usual, to put that in quotations. So for us, I don't see there being contentions, but I can't speak necessarily to other areas. There might be. I could say looking, so the city of Peterborough, which is 10 minutes away from me, is not in the county of Peterborough. It is a single tier municipality and does its own thing. Um, but that being said, it does have relations with the county on some ideas and some issues. Uh, sometimes it's ad, ad hoc. Um, sometimes, you know, it just depends on the issue area. But if you look at the city of Peterborough, there is the issue of affordability and housing. There is the question of employment and such. So if you go to the urban center, you see much more questions of social justice issues, food insecurity, um, where are houses going to be built? Um, who's going to build them when they're going to be built, who's going to have access to them first and foremost. And those questions, I think, are triggers that are not aligning necessarily with what the province has put forward. But I'm not trying to say that there is a clear cut line between what rural municipalities want and what urban municipalities want. Again, every municipality is different. It would have to be a case by case evaluation. So I guess lastly, you made some indications that you're reaching the end of your time at Carleton coming towards the finish line of your dissertation. And to kind of conclude here, I was just wondering if you could tell us about your work, what's your research focusing on and you know, where has it been taking you? So my PhD actually started at the University of Waterloo and I was looking at municipal food governance <laughs> in the face of climate change. Could food policy be a mitigation or resilience tactic towards climate change? Um, so looking at local efforts and how that affected kind of the broader climate change impacts. But then I had my first child and while on maternity leave, the option to come to Carleton arised and I took it and I actually switched to federal politics. And when I switched, I actually was not a Canadianist. <laughs> I was not completely focused on public administration. I was focused on agri-food policy and that is a whole realm in and of itself. But to understand how it works and, and why it functions and operates, you need to know the institutional side of the Canadian politics and that starts at the federal level. So coming to Carleton was really just such an opportunity that I didn't see at the time. And now that I've realized it's opened so many doors for me. When I came to Carleton, I automatically was working with Peter Andre, who's in political science with us. And we partnered with Patricia Balaminier, who's in geography and environmental science, um, the floor below us. <laughs> and we were partnered through the Fledge partnership, that's food locally embedded, globally engaged. And it's the Shirk partnership that was funded um, and actually just finished this year. And uh, it's an international partnership of, of academics and researchers who come together to look at food at different levels. And one pillar of this research was food policy. And so with Peter and Trish, I actually focused on the development of Canada's first national food policy. And my dissertation looks at a case study of the development of that policy between 2015 and 2019. And uh, theoretically, I use discursive institutionalism, which means I look at the discourse of food policy. That means what people are saying, what they're doing. Um, so looking at specific 
uh, different actors, um, how they articulate the power that they use to influence policy. And I look at all these different actors, both state and non-state between 2015 and 2019. I also do data analysis of the documents they produced and I did 58 semi-structured elite interviews. And so my research has taken me over almost eight years to complete because it's so long, but coming to the end of it, I'm actually looking at what were the key asks um, or objectives of stakeholders? How did that translate into what the government was doing around food policy? Um, did they have their own objectives? Did they adopt? Because um, food politics is very complex. It's, it's really hard to articulate what food policy is and then translate that into one policy. And then at the very end of it, I look at the final policy document and I consider the extent to which Canada reached for and achieved an integrated food policy. So a long articulated I don't have an, an elevator speech because it's so complex. <laughs> no, but it sounds like really cool stuff. And I mean, some of the most relevant topics in, in governance, right? Access to food. That's one of the biggest issues that we're going to be facing. I mean, it's one of the biggest issues today. And moving forward, it's just going to be more integral for governance to properly address it. For sure. And that's um, when you look at the case study, that was one of the focal areas um, was food insecurity. But how was that? A lot of questions around that were how is that linked to environmental sustainability when Canada's targeting to bolster the agricultural sector to reach 85 billion in exports by like early or sorry, mid 2020s, right? So like that's how do you, are those are very con, um, contradicting ideas and objectives in one policy. So that in itself suggested the policy would not come to anything. <laughs> but, um so that that's just an example of like the kind of tensions that I'm looking at and unpacking and trying to articulate to stakeholders and policymakers in the future this is what happened here are the tensions here's how we could move forward the second part of my work now I'm running for municipal council in my township for the 2020 municipal elections this fall and I had to take a good month to think about it with my partner because <laughs> we had to think about like is it the right time is it is it going to impact our family and we have to think about like the community we're very deeply involved in our community um we had to think about the extent to which like i'm going to be making decisions for the community like that's a big role to take on and it's it's a lot of you're going to have a lot of backlash right that being said i made the decision um our current ward counselor donna ballantyne is stepping down after 20 years she's done amazing work and so i feel like her legacy needs to be carried on she's done a lot of great things alongside other counselors who are leaving I feel like I'm a strong candidate to step into the ring, especially coming out of COVID with all the different elements we're going to be facing. But that being said, getting into that role in and of itself is, it's a tough route. So like, that kind of scared me before I made the decision. So I think all in all, you can chalk this up to being a popularity contest in my, in my municipality because our municipality is broken down into, um, there's a number of founding families who've been here since the 1800s, my family included. And there's newcomers too, who uh, maybe have just moved from Peterborough or Toronto and, or they're seasonal. And so you have these different dynamics of appealing to different people, but it comes down to this popularity contest because the majority of voters are um, retirement age or older and they make up the majority of the population. And then this more, that being said, the population is expected to boom very soon. And that is um, partially due to the housing 
the housing, it's not a crisis, but like the, <laughs> the housing prices going up and people moving out to be able to find affordable housing. We also see population growth due to people having more children. Um, so the curve is changing for reproduction and a lot of people are moving to urban or moving from urban areas to rural areas, which are slowly being built up like ours. So that being said, I had to consider who was going to be coming in, who I was going to be representing, and was I going to be able to do that? And I came to the decision like this is the once in a lifetime opportunity. I mean, I could try to run a grand, but I don't know if people don't want me, then they don't want me. <laughs> so I had to think very strategically about doing this because there's dynamics here that we had to, I was unpacking in my own mind. I wasn't really vocalizing it to other people. And this was partially because of my academic background. So there's the fact that I'm female and I have three kids and I'm younger so I'm really busy and I'm finishing my PhD so I'm very very busy <laughs> could I take on this role my argument is yes because I've, I've always been hustling hard as a female studying politics and so moving into it like on a practice level I think it's actually going to be much easier but there's still a lot of assumptions around female in politics and the extent to which they can practice or operate in the most rational and um, efficient way. So I had to come up with an election platform, which not a lot of municipal politics um, literature like focuses on. And so when you look at examples outside of major cities, you don't really see people like running on a platform. They'll note like four or five things at most that they're interested in changing or seeing. And it's very personal. Um, so I actually articulated using my academic background, um, looking at like yeah. what pillars <laughs> would I have, how could I achieve them, and really trying to make my platform accessible. Because again, being an academic, we talk on such like a jargony level. We have to, you know, take a step back, take a breath, and think about how is this going to be clear to, to somebody who isn't in political science and who isn't even interested in municipal politics. So you had to think strategically about how am I going to sell myself to people who already know me, <laughs> as well as people who don't know me. And then general canvassing and stuff, I've had to recruit volunteers. And again, this is much different than looking at the provincial and federal level where you have parties with lots of money behind them and lots of strategy and history of what works, what doesn't work, and lots of literature of um, overcoming challenges and finding opportunities. I'm one person and I'm just doing this out of my three degrees and one diploma. I'm like hustling hard and we'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, if it's popularity contest, I hope it's one that you win. And I mean, it feels like someday there could be a really interesting article or book to write about the experience, particularly from like a political science standpoint. I think, uh, yeah, that'd be real cool. Well, this has been a fantastic talk, really insightful, really appreciate you taking the time here to speak to us about municipal governance and, you know, the work ahead. Thanks so much. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore PolySci on Instagram at cu underscore poly dot sci and on Facebook at carltonu dot poly sci.